0: If you need help, don't go to a random 21-year-old on the internet who's talking about their trauma. Go to Transpect and and Geta and, you know, email a parent organization because it's really not fair to dump that. And if you do want to get access to that sweet information, you know, the wisdom, you know, that you might glean from a detransitioner, you know, actually form a real connection with them and take an interest in their life outside of just saying, sort of pitying, placating things. You must be some kind of therapist.
1: I am some kind of therapist and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate and inspire transformation in ourselves intimate relationships and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Nguyen, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I have a couple of exciting announcements I don't want you to miss out on. Number one, the film I am proud to be a part of, Affirmation Generation, is now available. This film does an incredible job of exposing the gender crisis, and we want it to reach therapists, doctors, parents, teachers, politicians, and anyone in a position to care. You can stream our early access edition of this film online anytime, as well as watch the trailer, learn more, or donate to the film at AffirmationGenerationMovie.com. Number two, I've started a new private online community for listeners of this podcast. You can find it at SomeKindOfTherapist.Locals.com. This new offering fulfills several needs. Over the past year, my reach has grown exponentially, and while it delights me to know that my podcast is now in the top 2.5% globally, the matching rise in the amount of emails and DMs I receive has been overwhelming. It's simply too much for one person to handle, and while I care about my listeners, staring at a screen typing words at them for free feeds neither my stomach nor my soul. I had to create some kind of filter to make my engagement feel sustainable and nourishing to me. And fortunately, this is exactly what Locals was designed to do for independent content creators like myself. When you join my Locals community as a supporting member for $8 a month, you get to submit questions that I will answer in members-only Q&A live streams. I'm also considering offering behind-the-scenes early access to new podcasts as they're being recorded. Plus, of course, you get to meet light-minded people who share your interests in an online environment that's free of ads, bullies, and trolls. With Locals, you also get to choose how much you reveal about yourself on your profile so you can be undercover or out in the open. And you get to select whether your posts in my community are visible to anyone who drops by or only to other committed members. If you'd like to support me at a higher level, you can become a premium member for $24 a month, which allows you to privately message me, and I will prioritize responding to premium members' direct messages. I think this is a great solution that is designed to meet everyone's needs. Although we are just getting started, and this community is currently small and new, we've already got some great people on board, including thoughtful therapists, concerned parents, and free-thinking, politically homeless people. Please come along and check out my growing community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. Make the most of your trial membership by asking a question in the latest Q&A thread, and I will provide a live-streamed answer you can join me for or watch later. What have you got to lose? All right, now on to today's episode. Today my guest is Laura Becker. Uh, Many of you may know Laura by her, uh, what do you call it, funk god? Is that like your alter ego? (laughs) Uh,
0: I call it my persona. Mm -hmm.
1: By her persona, funk god, Laura is an artist, a musician, a writer, and a detransitioned woman who's also featured in our film, Affirmation Generation, which has recently come out. You can hear Laura's story and hear from me and other detransitioners and other experts in our film, Affirmation Generation, which you can watch at AffirmationGenerationMovie.com. So Laura has bravely shared her story with a variety of people and platforms at this point. We won't reinvent the wheel by having her tell her story all over again, although some details might come up. But today, Laura and I are going to explore sort of where she's at in her healing journey and what she's learned along the way in her process of recovering from the trauma of detransition. Laura, welcome. It's great to have
0: you. Thank you, Stephanie. It's great to talk to you. Not on Twitter, but actually Facebook.
1: (laughs) Well, and it feels like we know each other so well because we've been in this film together. We've also corresponded back before I got insanely busy and I was trying this correspondence project with the So we've written each other letters, um, but it's great to finally talk. I feel like this conversation is overdue. Um, and I want to start off with a recent tweet you posted where you posed the question that someone had asked you, do you want to be known for your trauma or do you want to be known for your art? And you gave this beautiful explanation as to why you actually want to be known for both. And I just saw it. there was so much wisdom and so much self-acceptance in that. So let's just start there. Laura, do you want to be known for your trauma or do you want to be known for your art?
0: Well, I probably won't give as eloquent of a response as I like wrote out, like whenever I wrote that (laughs) essay, but um, my answer is still, I want to be known for both because they are both parts of my being. You know, my the one of my many shticks about funk God is, is that I'm very um, intensely funky in good ways and bad ways. Not to be too you know dualistic, but um, there's the good funks and the bad funks, and sort of the shadow and the transcendent higher self and. The art, you know, represents that higher self. It represents creating. It represents um, renewal and inspiration. And the trauma represents destruction and loss and grief um, and stuckness. And both of them have always existed in tandem. And so, to be known for one and not the other, it's just not the way of the artist. First of all, like as an artist yeah, you're going to talk about your trauma, like, but also, you know, as a trauma survivor who speaks out about these things, um, you know, the art is integral to that healing process. And so the process of creation and destruction is intertwined. And um, I'm happy to be known for both because both of them are forms of transcending. You know, I was thinking earlier today about you know, the concept of having an identity as a detransitioner and how there it can be, um, you know, perhaps precautions should be taken, you know, when you're identifying too much with um, something like detransition or being a detransitioner, what that means politically, you know, socially um, and mentally. And I was thinking, I definitely have an identity as a detransitioner. Um, but the difference I think, which is healthy is that, my identity as a detransitioner is in a survivor mentality, not a victim mentality. Although I discuss my trauma. I mean, it's it's my hobby to to discuss my trauma, you know, but um I, I do it in a way of, you know, contemplating it and accepting it and 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 practicing transcending it versus identifying with um being victimized.
1: I love that. And It just makes me think of how one of my concerns about the field of psychology and psychotherapy is that when you become overly fixated on trauma or diagnosis, it can become um, like very inwardly focused and self-scrutinizing to the point where there's fear of imperfection and you know, almost anybody could qualify for some diagnosis in the DSM. But I feel like we've pathologized the human condition. And I feel like somewhere along the way, we stopped giving room to have personality and, and to, to, to be a person, right? Having a mixture of strengths and weaknesses that come with them. and 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 you can't separate the two. Like, Like so for me personally, I'm very impulsive. And that is a flaw, but it's also how I get so many things done. (laughs) And like I wouldn't be who I am without that. And I could identify, you know, 10 other character traits like that for myself or for anybody I know, where, you know, you you, it's like you gotta take the good with the bad. And and I hear in you this story of self-acceptance that, you know, you have these scars, you have literal, physical, as well as metaphorical, emotional scars. And you're not necessarily wearing those scars proudly, but you're not ashamed of them either. You're just letting them be part of who you are. It's kind of, it kind of reminds me of that concept of wabi-sabi, like the, the beauty in the brokenness or the imperfection.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess as an artist, not to be not to be glib about it, but that is sort of the artistic cliche: is finding the beauty within the brokenness. But that all, you know, it 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 could be parodied. But in all earnestness, that is, you know, the function of art and um, of this artist archetype that I sort of identify as. Like, I think, you know, if you can't find beauty, you know. With like the concept of finding beauty within pain, I think is is a little bit difficult. Um, when you're in pain, like the pain, you're not going to find beauty by looking at the pain. But there is still beauty if you just take your gaze off the pain and focus it on something beautiful. So it's not that the pain necessarily is beautiful, but the fact that their beauty beauty still exists at the same time as pain like an exercise i do sometimes is um like i carry most of my uh ptsd sort of pain in my heart space so my heart aches a lot physically and so when i'm having a lot of heartache i'll try to think uh i'll try to focus my attention on other parts of my body that are feeling good like my hands or feet like just feeling nice i'm just like both are happening at once I'm not only this and I, so I don't overly identify with the pain, you know?
1: I love that. And that's, that's a brilliant technique. Um, I, I've, I've taught that in, in not so many words, right? But this idea that while a part of you is hurting or injured or broken, there are other parts of you that are whole, that your, your blood and life force is pulsing through parts that feel okay or that feel good if you tune into it, parts that you can bring your awareness to. And I think that's such a valuable coping tool for pain, especially the types of pain that we can't easily get rid of or overcome, just to kind of let your awareness become diffuse. And it doesn't make the pain go away, but it changes our relationship with that pain. I feel like I've gotten better at accepting limitations the past year because I've been chronically ill for like... To some degree, I've been ill or injured about 90% of the time for the past year, and I feel like I'm starting to handle it a little bit more gracefully where I work with the energy that I have when it's available to me, and I use it as productively as possible, and then when I feel that pain kicking in or that fatigue, I just sort of soften and relax into it, and I notice that as I have a little bit more grace uh, in my relationship with pain and suffering, it, it does create some ease. And it allows you to see that there's, there's still something there. It also reminds me of mortality. Um, after certain traumas that I went through, I went through a phase that I feel like I'm just now coming out of really where anytime I started to care about someone, I would immediately start thinking about their death. Um, like I would even dream about them dying. And it was a reflection of the fear of loss But also the the poignance of what it is to really care about someone, to let them into your heart, knowing that death is always with us. And, you know, us young people, I mean, I'm obviously a bit older than you, but you know, we're we're um relatively young compared to some people. We don't have a lot of people dying all around us all the time. And I think some people don't really start thinking about death until they get a lot older. But I do see a wisdom, and there are certain wisdom traditions that teach this too, in contemplating death and contemplating the finitude and sometimes it's that the bittersweetness of knowing that everyone and everything you love is temporary and will perish and will change sometimes being with that allows you to cherish the beauty that much more
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I think we do have a separation which makes sense people want to avoid um most like pain as much as they can um but we do have a cultural separation in the west um from mortality from aging from the elderly um and from those traditional um wisdoms um not something i've learned from jordan peterson uh, as many i've learned many things from him but um definitely understanding the importance of confronting um you know, those um those dragons. Uh and obviously the biggest dragon being death. Um, a friend of mine, I so I recently got some um hate that that actually bothered me. Cause I get a lot of hate and most of it like it all triggers me a little bit just because I have that instinctual reaction if I'm getting criticized or shamed. But most of it I just laugh off and I'm just like, who cares? Someone who doesn't even know me, but I got some hate recently from someone who sort of knew me um, in the past, and it was more—it was very personal, and um, it triggered me, and I got a lot of anxiety about um, just um, you know public backlash or just just basically reputation, reputational damage or things. Um, and a friend told me, you know, think about this situation and think about how it could lead to death and go through the logical steps that it would take to get to death and then step back and examine how far away that would be. And I started going through like, okay, um, if this happens, then I won't, you know, be able to have any money and I'll be homeless and then I'll, and I'll get raped and I, you know, will never be safe and then I'll die. And it's like this, this very, um, you know, catastrophizing method of thinking until I got to death. And I'm just like, that's realistically, none of that is going to happen, most likely. And there are so many sort of barrier, um, or should I say safeguarding measures or protective factors that I have that would, that wouldn't happen um, realistically. And that really, that's, that helped me to basically just get rid of that anxiety.
1: You know, Laura, you often sound like someone who has done a lot of therapy and really made the most of it. <laughs> um, I want <laughs> to get into you. your session with Jordan Peterson uh, because I think that's that's fascinating. But you just described sort of an organic decatastrophizing process. And and that's a tool that's used in cognitive behavioral therapy to actually think it through when you're so afraid of something. It's like, okay, let's go ahead, play it out. Okay. So what's the worst that would happen? And what's the worst part about that? And what's the worst part about that? And then what would happen? And then what, and then you, you know, you get to the point of yes, realizing that it's unlikely to go there, or that even if you did it, d- it, you would cope. Um, And I I think that's a useful thought experiment because we can spend our lives frozen in fear about possible outcomes. But if you walk yourself through it, it's like, what then? Like, you know, I haven't been through the worst things that anybody on the planet has been through, but I've I've had my share. And like one story that I have to tell is that I faced what many therapists would consider one of their worst fears, which is threats to my license. And it's like, so many people spend so much of their life withholding their truth based in fear of ever having to face threats to their license. And it's like, well, okay, I got through it and lived to tell a tale. It wasn't pleasant. It definitely caused some anxiety and stress. And it's part of the reason I've been chronically ill for the past year because I had too many stressors hit my nervous system while I was recovering from COVID and my nervous system just broke. <laughs> like I literally had a nervous breakdown when my nervous system stopped cooperating with what I needed it to do. So, I mean, but here I am, right? Like, like you you live, and I, I've often kind of gone through this with people who have have suffered immeasurable losses. It's like, you know, there are people who spend their whole lives in fear, and then they go through some horrible loss, and it's like, well, now that's officially the worst thing that you were afraid could ever happen, and it happened. So, now what do you have to lose? Like, why would you live another day of your life in fear when the worst thing that could happen to you already happened? Like, these are just Mm -hmm. bonus days of your life to do whatever you want with, if you think about it that way.
0: That is how I started to think about, I mean, you know, there was, you know, a DS, let's say, um, I was descending into deeper layers of hell uh, over the course of about 13, 14 years. And it just kept getting, you know, I used to joke like I keep finding tunnels like under rock bottom. It just kept getting worse and worse. But what I realized is that rock bottom is the moment when you get hit so hard that then you finally wake up. That's what rock bottom. There are many traumatic events that happen, you know, that people would consider very low. I mean, when I hit my rock bottom... And then I started to wake up that wasn't the lowest that I'd ever been that wasn't the worst that I'd ever been doing but it was the moment that brought me to um you know the point of no return in terms of me taking accountability for my life and um and not and facing the fear mm-hmm. um because I'd already lost so much and I I was like okay I mean I've had a couple moments like that um I've had about three major moments like that, actually, but this one was the most severe. I think it was because I'd already started healing and going through my spiritual process, and then it hit me. So when it hit me, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm ready now to accept all the lessons and now work on it for several years, you know? So <sighs> facing fear is, is, is crucial
1: many directions we could go there. I I see a lot of value in hitting bottom as well. And I can relate because I think one of the biggest blessings in my life today came only after hitting bottom and really feeling my pain deeply and in a very raw and honest way. It was only after kind of letting that pain cut me to a certain depth that I was able to kind of open to the universe in a way that made room for the light to come in. But let's talk about your obsession with Jordan Peterson. You talk about... (laughs) you talk about many kind of jordan peterson like themes but in your own like 26 year old funk god artist way you know when you when you talk about hell for instance and you know i'm i'm a believer that hell is a state of mind and that heaven and hell exist here on earth that that if you know if you get into the spiritual earth is a mixed realm you have angels and devils here playing it out within each of us and i think that's part of why Jordan Peterson, one of many ways in which he resonates with so many people is that he speaks to those aspects of the spiritual experience in a very grounded way and without always relying on religious language to do so. So, hell is just one sort of touch point that, you know, something I hear Jordan Peterson talk about that you just talked about. Um, but maybe we can kind of bring it back to the beginning. Um, because, and for those who aren't familiar with Laura, I know at this point we have a lot of community in common and, you know, like Abel DMs me about how he's like Abel and Casey are both like, Laura's getting me into making J P art. I mean, there's a whole community of people who know what you're up to, but for those who aren't familiar, <laughs> um, you are, uh, you are Definitely in, in Jordan Peterson's topmost fan club, obsessed to the point where some of us have tried to intervene, like when you make uh, creepy art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I'm glad we can joke about it. And by the way, thank mm-hmm. you for introducing me to the music of Akira the Dawn, which um, all unfolded over Twitter. Um, but like, how did you get into Jordan Peterson? Do you remember what it was like discovering Jordan Peterson, and what was your journey like? Yeah. Did you initially? I can imagine, like, being young and in the culture that you're in in the past, like, did you initially feel a lot of resistance to Jordan Peterson or did he immediately appeal to you?
0: Um, I mean, I started getting into Jordan Peterson, like, directly after the rock bottom. And so at that point, I was just so dazed and confused that I was like, I need to go back to basics. And Jordan's whole message, or his, like, most... um cliche common message that was that circulates is just the idea of cleaning your room. you know, um, going to the the way he described it, like people make fun of that, but the way he actually describes it in dense detail of how you can change your perspective to try to sort out chaos, try to order chaos just at the slightest level of the smallest level of chaos that you possibly can order that. And then move on incrementally until you have ordered more chaos. That was a breakthrough to me. It sounds simple, but just his overly complicated way of describing it, like that helped my brain because it was my, I have a very complicated, I think a lot divergently, just like he does. And so um, the concept of order and chaos became really my obsession. That became sort of my philosophy because that's really what it's about. You know, if you're dazed and confused and completely overwhelmed, your nervous system is overwhelmed and you have a lot of stuckness and depression um, and hopelessness, then ordering chaos is going to make the most sense. It isn't just, that's a neutral concept. It isn't because you can order chaos in a way that's beneficial to you or not beneficial to you. And chaos is a neutral um, thing and so is order. But if you can start to have a better relationship to balance out order and chaos, sort of in a Taoist sort of way, um, that I became obsessed with that. And immediately I latched onto that. I did not have any issue with Jordan Peterson. Um, and early on, you know, a couple of my friends were like, he's evil. I was like, no, he's not. He's, he's just talking common sense. Um, and, um, and my therapist happened to like him too. And like, every cool person I knew was into him. So I'm just like, okay. Um, and so, yeah, right away was, um, it was very impactful and powerful to me and his concept of ordering chaos and setting incremental goals. Again, it sounds so simple, but when you listen to hours and hours of him talk about, you know, history and archetypal concepts and biblical concepts and building, blowing it up to this universal existential level and then breaking it back down into these finite manageable pieces. That is what I really needed. Um, Just that going all the way around and um, and then coming back and saying, okay, I need to take some responsibility. I can achieve certain things and I'm going to make goals. And I started making goals lists every month. And then I started making them every week And then I started making them every day. And now, uh, you know, I've been doing this for about two years now. And I rely on those goals lists because I noticed that every single thing that I put down on that goals list, I ended up doing. And I just started doing something that's been on that goals list for two years, which is making um, psychedelic pore paintings. It's like, I know if I put it on the list that I'm going to be bored one day and be like, oh yeah, I need to do that. Or I should do that. Just keep referring back to your goals and intentions, and you'll eventually achieve all of them. So that's how it began.
1: If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep you need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that, a demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further, I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm gonna genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by Eight Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to eightsleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, Eight Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Wow, what a beautiful telling of the story that you were at rock bottom, and that's when you discovered. It's like I'm picturing Jordan Peterson as like passing a rope down a well. <laughs> it's like the help is there, right? Yeah, and, and I I,
0: make some art of that.
1: <laughs> I honestly think that. The people who hate Jordan Peterson are exactly the ones who need his medicine the most. Like they're the ones uh-huh. who need to clean up their rooms, you know, and it's like there's this resistance to the medicine because there's there's this poison in them that they've been absorbing from from their environment or their conditioning or their trauma or what have you. And and they can't see clearly. And I, I think, yeah, it's, it's a huge test. Of a person's character, their ability to resonate with wisdom, their ability to think for themselves to see how they think about Jordan Peterson. Um, and so you, you described being at this rock bottom and then seeing that this help was being offered and that there was something you could do. And it started with ordering your immediate environment, cleaning your room physically, but also metaphorically taking control of what you could take control of. And I, I think that's really the essence of recovery from hitting bottom. And that's how people make it out of some really dark places. And you just described it so beautifully. You know, I've I've worked in therapy for years sometimes with people who, it's like they're hovering a few inches above rock bottom. Like they're so afraid to hit bottom, but they're staying in a really low place and there's this resistance to grief and sorrow, a resistance to pain, but they're already in so much pain and it would only turn up the pain dial just one more notch for them to really feel it and, and let themselves encounter the futility and the sorrow and the grief of what is not working or what has been lost or what the truth of the matter is, right? And it's like, if you can just allow yourself to touch the bottom of that well, and get some moment get some movement you can you can start to move from that stuck place hovering for years just above the bottom of the well and and you can hit bottom and you can start to bounce you can start to work with what you have and and it starts with what can i control in this moment is there one thing i can make more orderly or more beautiful i mean put more casually it's kind of you you could chalk it up as like a fake it till you make it thing But really, it's, it's, I think, the blessing of the fact that our thoughts, feelings, and actions are separate and they can be differentiated. And we spend a lot of time in suffering when, when we operate from the belief that how we feel must govern how we act. And it's like the moment you realize that those two don't have to be attached to each other, that you can feel like absolute hell. But you can do something constructive anyway, it's like when you get that, well then you've discovered a power you didn't know you had before. You're no longer stuck with how your pain and suffering and trauma would compel you to act. It doesn't mean you have total self-control, but you work your way up one bit at a time. It starts with cleaning your room, or it starts with regulating your sleeping, or your eating, or exercising, or you know, just taking care of what you can take care of. And it's just so beautiful how you described it, Laura, that you started with that and and you started making monthly goals, then weekly and daily, and now you have an Etsy shop. Oh, I should have worn my shirt. <laughs> I have a shirt from you. Yes. Um, and I'll make sure that, that, you, uh, that we have that in the show notes, that information about your Etsy shop and where people can find you. Um you've really accomplished a lot that way. You say it's been going on about two years?
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's been some it's been e- excruciatingly painful. I mean, because I've been in therapy weekly, you know, or even biweekly and um, processing, you know my entire life pretty much, um, and a lot of specific PTSD, causing events and then the complex ptsd of you know childhood developmental things and existential things um so it's been excruciatingly painful these past 2 years i mean i've cried pretty much every single day if not multiple times a day and i still cry every single day and i and it's very painful um but and yet this has been the most productive 2 years of my life and i've accomplished more and i feel better about myself and more confident and I have more connections and I just feel more competent. So I've released a lot of shame despite the pain. So they aren't mutually exclusive.
1: I want to talk to you a little bit about being, you know, so-called detransitioner or ex-trans. I mean, there's, you know, obviously there's debate over what terms people use. I think detransitioner is kind of the consensus of what most people use because it's easy to follow. You also talked about being in the survivor mentality so we could about- talk about being a survivor of malpractice. So in our film, Affirmation Generation, Lisa Marciano talks about the Jungian concept of the shadow, that the shadow is any part of ourself that we don't really want to know about and how she's thought about how detransitioners are like holding the shadow for society. I'm curious as someone who's been through that, how did, how did seeing that section of the film resonate with you?
0: Um, I completely agreed with her because detransitioners are like the dirty laundry. I mean, and it makes sense because if you track the history of, and I know you know it, um, but if you track the history of the trans movement and the, how that came about, how the tea was added to the LGB and all of that, these, the people who were identifying as trans were already the dirty laundry of society. They were homosexuals. They may, may be some perversions. There was trauma victims or survivors. You know, now we're seeing the most vulnerable in our society still transitioning, you know? And so it makes sense that the detransitioners would be that dirty laundry even more so because they're still the same vulnerable populations of homosexuals, trauma survivors, neurodivergences, and the the young but they also have the added stigma of being the dirty laundry that many people who identify as trans don't want to accept within themselves and the supporters of, as I say, the well-intentioned liberals don't want to view and uh, maybe some, you know, more conservative leaning people as well. Cause again, it's still that dirty laundry in their eyes for the left. They see, detransitioners as the dirty laundry of their own unexamined, you know, sort of shallow understandings of the human condition or development or spirituality or things that relate to medical interventions for mental health issues. And for the uh, more conservative side, they view detransitioners as the dirty laundry of the gays and the, the trannies and, you know, just that sort of thing, the, the more traditionally seen dirty laundry. I I like to say that the when I get insults from left-leaning people, it's always like, you're a bigot, kill yourself, you know, you're slaughtering trans people, you know, you mind your own business. And then from the right, it's more like serves you right, you know, you're going to hell and you need to accept Jesus. And, you know, you will never, you know, that's your own problem. Like live with it, snowflake. Like just both, both sides, dirty laundry or shadow. Unexamined, maybe self, you know, shame um, comes out direct towards so- someone in a vulnerable position like a detransitioner.
1: There's a lot of projection in that. And it's like, yeah, you really get the worst of both worlds. I mean, from the left, here are people who think of themselves as being so compassionate and non judgmental and understanding and em- embracing. Victims and embracing minorities, and, and yet it's like I wonder if part of the resistance that's keeping this locked in place is that the, the resistance to look at how they themselves are treating you, right? And so they just keep doubling down and doubling down on finding ways to dehumanize you. Um, what do you think about how people are currently talking to, with, and about detransitioners. Because I will say it's been a learning curve for me um, these past few years since I started learning about detransitioners and talking to detransitioners. And I think, like, in general, most people in our society, like, aren't really all that great at being with pain and inconvenience and, like, things that you can't explain away. And I see myself as... A bit exceptional in that regard, partly by my nature, but also by years and years of being a therapist. Like it's my job to sit with people in pain. So I've gotten good at it. Um and I so I can't, it's it's harder for me to kind of put myself in the mentality of someone who is in the habit of avoiding sitting with pain, because that's like one thing that is not an option for me. <laughs> um, and and my heart just compels me to do it because of my own suffering and what I needed when I was in pain. So um, it, it seems to me like the transitioners, like you described the kind of the worst that you get from the left and the right, but then from people who care, is there like a, a rushing to fix it? Is there a putting you on a pedestal? Is there treating you like a victim that needs to be coddled? Like, do we know how to talk to each other as human beings, but also like, do we as a society know how to talk to the people among us? And I want us to emphasize among us who have been through this unique form of trauma. Cause I'm thinking ahead to, you know, my prediction is that by 2026, detransition transition will be a household name. Everyone's going to know that people who've been through what you've been through exist and are part of our society. Um, and right now I just feel like, we're not very good at talking about it or talking to people who have had these experiences. So what have been your experiences from people who maybe like aren't on those extremes of the left and right, who maybe mean well, but miss the mark? And then also, is there a way for us to talk about this that doesn't replicate the excesses of the left, which focus on like being overly sensitive and putting trigger warnings around everything and treating people like they're a special class of victims. Like, can we not replicate that while also learning to be sensitive in ways that maybe we've missed?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, we know that people are going to project whatever, you know, they have going on in their life onto whatever situation that they're perceiving that they're going to perceive it through their own lens. That's biased. Um, So, you know, you get, sort of the common groups of people that a detransitioner would interact with there's the parents that's a huge group of people parents um desperate parents that are in a lot of distress you know reaching out to trauma survivors you know if we just take the term detransition out of it let's just use language that other people are familiar with and to understand this is a trauma survivor this is a young most of the time younger trauma survivor and there's you know Middle aged adults reaching out, and I mean this in a neutral way, I'm not I'm judging, but there's middle aged adults, parents desperately crying and reaching out and asking for, you know, very high levels of support and advice from um, these young trauma survivors, including myself. And of course, I happen to be very into psychology and therapy and the healing world and different things, and I like to talk. So I've been happy to talk to people. I've done consultations at times, paid consultations that I stopped doing because it was just, I felt out of my comfort zone with that, as you could imagine. Um, But, you know, those types of people, they don't have the emotional, they don't have access to a more sophisticated emotional intelligence because of their high levels of distress when they reach out to someone who really has very little advice to give. Um, like, you know, I think everyone is processing their own stuff and they can help the public or help themselves mainly through writing essays and things like that. Like, I think if people really want advice, re- look at the content that these people are making. And if someone isn't making content, don't reach out to them because they're not you know, they're not, um, in a place to be public. And if you do reach out to someone who's written an essay, you know, try to keep it on that topic because, you know, um, there is advice to be had. Like I've, I've developed positive relationships with parents and, um, friendships and, you know, there's a mutual, um, giving of advice. It's not that detransitioners are you know, complete like we don't want to lean towards the left, you know, the the overly coddling idea that you can't ever, you know, infringe on on them in any way and or talk to them about things or that they don't have advice. But I think, like for example, I was in a I was just doing a space on Twitter with um a couple of my friends, including Chloe Cole. And we were just hanging out and the space was I named the space um Friday night funky people's hangout, Friday night boogaloo or some like, you know, kind of jokey thing, just a casual hangout. And we were just talking about, you know, Jordan Peterson, like different things that we talk about as people. And then some random mom came in and just completely derailed the conversation, just came in, basically just said, she started crying, you know, it was um. Very like to me, it wasn't even awkward because I just experienced it so much. But I could tell it was awkward for you know it's just it's just not it's not socially appropriate um, to do that to go and just say oh hey I just saw you in this space that had nothing to do with gender whatsoever, and just because you're Chloe Cole, a detransitioner, I'm going to completely hijack this space and start crying about my daughter and basically begging for advice and saying like the universe showed me you in this space to give me advice I mean it's like obviously I had empathy for this person I mean they're in a lot of pain to be to be in saying that but it's 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 not socially appropriate it's not having proper boundaries not respecting other people it's not respecting detransitioners boundaries and there's really no advice that can be given. That's the thing. Like parents are reaching out for advice because they're they just want to cling on to anything. Um and I think they could do with some distress tolerance, you know, because you're reaching out and you're basically asking, you know, there's I've done consultations with parents and they basically ask me, how do I save her? What help this is the question I always get. What would have made you not be trans? What could your parents have said? And I'm just like, listen, it's extremely complicated. I have trauma from my parents, from abuse, from my family. So it's complicated. And, um, you know, and they ask these questions that I can tell are they just haven't been able to find, you know, coping strategies to deal with the uncertainty. And I don't think it's fair to place that upon a young trauma survivor, especially um, you know, the really young ones and the ones who aren't speaking publicly. I mean, there's a difference between there's a difference between um, you know, maybe directly writing something very coherent and directed at an audience of parents or or giving advice directly as a detransitioner and writing a personal, you know, sort of reflection post and you know, and just self-processing that way. And maybe it's public, you know? So I think there's a lot, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Like, I don't think it's socially appropriate um, to, to do, you know, to, to, ex- I don't, hmm, to expect someone to perform emotional labor for you as a stranger who has no clinical training and who has you know it just a lot of trauma experience and they're young and they don't really know um someone like me i i have studied a lot of these things on my own cuz i'm interested in them and that makes me seem you know intelligent and you know that people you know not to say that i'm not intelligent or that i don't know what i'm talking about but at the same time you know um we we need to come back to basic sort of common sense like you're like a 55-year-old parent asking a 22-year-old for parenting advice you know and this is what comes back to like the sacred caste idea or the the specialness that's around gender or trans or detrans there's nothing special about a trans person or a detrans person these are all just human condition issues and the detransition stuff is Is not special. The detransitioner is not going to be some kind of oracle to you. And I'm sounding really negative right now. I I really have complete empathy for people I I respond to emails and different things all the time. But you know, it is, if I'm being honest, like it is, you know, it's a it's it's a little hysterical. Um, it's a little histrionic. Um, and you know, we need to this is what I would always tell parents. I would say. You know, read something about development, read something about child psychology, read something about evolutionary psychology, because what we're seeing today is that one moment of contemporary culture manifesting in a specific way due to medical and and social, you know, um, causations, just look, you know, decades into the past, there's been plenty of material written about similar things. And we don't need to get so caught up in this, what, you know, the pseudo, you know, um, spirituality and religiosity of, of gender, you know.
1: As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done people often set goals that are too lofty only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and three grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com and use promo code Therapist to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Yeah. Well, these dynamics that you describe are so, um, there's so many layers to them, like a couple of words that come are coming to mind are parentification and martyr. So, you know, when I think of a detransitioner, there's many different childhood histories that could be going on there, but among those options, definitely some people were let down by their parents Some people were neglected or harmed by their parents. I would argue everyone who's been through the trauma of medically transing your body only to discover you can't change sex and that doesn't make you feel better. Everyone who's been through that trauma, especially those at a young age, have been let down by authority figures. And when you're young, parents and authority figures tend to be seen as a cohesive unit So doctors and therapists and maybe any teachers or other adult figures in the lives of these young people who participated in moving them in that direction, you know, all kind of lumped in together with parents as authority figures that let them down, that misled them, betrayed them, hurt them. So you already have this experience in some way, shape, or form as a detransition. Obviously, individual experiences vary, And you haven't been properly looked out for by the adults you want to be able to trust and look up to for guidance. And then once you've gone through this additional trauma, then you have all these people who are also older than you, who are in some respects authority figures, who are also parents turning to you saying, we need your help. We need your advice. It's like a double whammy
0: yeah it's it's been it's a very interesting dynamic um because i mean I do think there's a positive aspect to the parents i mean because it really is a um a um it's a, a pr- protector against vulnerability to to be of service to other people to be able to help people and it's been a very healing to me to to be able to, to feel valued by other people asking me for advice, Um, getting a lot of just really, really lovely, genuine comments from total strangers, emails, and, um, you know, most of the emails and messages I've received aren't just like a frantic, you know, I demand you help me with this situation or someone just trauma dumping on you. I mean, there's definitely a lot of that. But most of it is just very kind messages. And then people sort of adding in like, my own child is going through this and I just wish there was something I could do. Um, And I have been able to um, create a positive self image by, by seeing them through, seeing myself through the lens that some of these parents see me. Like I have a mom friend who, you know, actually we started I started consulting with her, and we actually became genuine friends—a um, mutually beneficial, real friendship and relationship, not just trauma dumping and giving advice, or you know, in a shallow way. Um, and she told me, like, you don't see yourself the way that all of us parents see you. We see you as so resilient and strong, and a sense of hope. And you got out of this, and you were smart, and all this. You just don't see yourself that way. And so, having genuine relationships. And interactions from those types of figures, you know, not even the fact that they're older, but from anybody is extremely powerful. But especially because they are older, because of my personal relationships to my family, um, you know, I have a lot of mama bears and some papa bears, and you know, aunts and uncle figures, and all these older people who just kept telling me, like you know, you're going to be fine. Like you're way ahead of me. This is a comment. I get a lot that I appreciate. They're just like, I didn't have the shit that you figured out, figured out until like five years ago or like, I'm in my sixties and I'm just now figuring out what you already know and talk about in detail. Like I get a lot of reassurance that I am actually a lot more healthy and competent, um, than I feel because of my shame. And so I don't want to color this, these parental interactions is all negative. They're very positive in many ways. Um, but I've also been able to spin it that way, you know, and other people might not be at a place where they can receive or give that sort of intimacy um, or communicate these sorts of things. Um, and that's what I see happening with some of the younger detransitioners. <laughs>
1: Well I, I really appreciate what a nuanced and robust view you just gave of, to put it bluntly, like the do's and don'ts of the the relationship potential between detransitioners and parents. And this is something that I don't really hear people talking about a lot. Like I talk to a lot of parents and I talk to a lot of detransitioners. And I witnessed parents talking and I witnessed detransitioners talking and I witnessed these dynamics between parents and detransitioners. But it's like, let's step back for a second and talk about the relationships between ROGD parents and detransitioners. And you gave such a beautiful description of sort of what that looks like at its least healthy, which, you know, the parentification, the martyr dynamics, the emotional labor of and bearing all your trauma for what, right? But then you also showed the bright side of what these relationships can become when there's, it sounds like mutuality, reciprocity, respect, um, sensitivity to where you're coming from. It sounds like what goes well for you in the relationships that, that can sustain you is that even though these parents might be just as desperately worried about their kids as some of the other parents you hear from, there's also some containment of that and like healthy boundaries where they recognize that you're a separate person who has your own stuff to deal with and they're they're able to na- navigate or negotiate that relationship with you in a way that's mutually beneficial because it sounds like you know as someone with your own family issues whatever those family issues might be there is something that you stand to gain out of someone else's parents being like quasi-parental figures for you. You know, I I've learned a lot through trial and error these past few years as I've been wor- working with and reaching out to detransitioners. And I remember one of the th- one of the many things I've gotten flack for was um <laughs> something I posted on Twitter suggesting uh suggesting that detransitioners and parents can have positive relationships because the reaction was like, oh, you don't know how many of us hate our parents and want nothing to do with me. And it's like, but I think you just gave such a beautiful view. So, and let's just go into that a little bit further because I think our audience is hungry for this. What could better relationships between these two sort of populations that are both in different ways affected by this issue, the D-trans population and the ROGD parent population, what could better relationships look like? And how would you suggest that people approach one another? And like, what tips would you give for helping those relationships go more like the, sort of the second set of relationships you described rather than the first?
0: I mean, I definitely think maintaining boundaries for yourself, you know, knowing, you know, your own being, you know, aware enough of your own sort of triggers and, um, communications and attachment, you know, related, um, things. I mean, just in any aspect of life, that's my advice to to be aware of that. But, um, you know, when, when you're interacting with, you know, potentially triggering, I mean, anyone is potentially triggering, um, but especially, Ish- around issues that are traumatic for both parties, I think being aware of your own, you know, um, communications and needs in a, any sort of interaction, you know, do you want someone who's just going to dump a bunch of, you know, a long email to you, a, you know, a stranger dumping a long email to you and just expecting you to answer it? Like, I've gotten emails uh, i've I've learned over time how to have boundaries. One of the boundaries I placed was expecting payment for my time because I would talk to these people and give them like hours of my time. And it was actually my mom friend who suggested that. Um, she has very looked out for my interest. Um, and then one time I got it, a very long email. And I typed out my response. And of course, I'm going to type out a thorough, detailed response because I want to give this person the best information possible. And I do have a lot of information. Um, but I noted, I took like an hour. It took an hour to write that. And I was just like, that I, you know, I, I, I can't. I, and so at the end of it, I said, you know, if you want to talk more, we can have a, a paid consultation. And he didn't respond after that. And that kind of felt rude to me. You know, he didn't really say thank you or he just a desperate person came in, dumped a bunch of their trauma looking for a quick fix. Someone gave them a treasure trove of information, not to be like too grandiose about it, but a lot of information and time. And then they got what they whatever, or maybe they didn't get what they wanted out of it, some kind of magical solution. And they just ignored that person and... I don't know what they did after that. Um, So not to focus on the negative, but to get into what can be done is to approach the person more on a level of mutual interest, you know, not just to say like, I, the the interactions I've had that are most positive, you know, versus uh, being very deep or more, a little more shallow on online, it, all of them, what they have in common is that there's mutual interest and Actual compatibilities and shared values and interests outside of just we both have these gender things going on in our life. Me with my detransition, you with your kid. You know, we've bonded over art and humor and music, and they actually take an interest in my life apart from me being a detransitioner. You know, they they value my art, they value my my thoughts they support me and encourage me on my vulnerable posts um and then that makes me feel like it's safe to um allow them to open up to me and to hold space for them because i know they can hold space for me and it's just you know just the same things you would apply to any relationship um but just having grace around that and bonding over other things besides the detransition cuz unless you're Specifically, offering some type of service where you're basically like, "Ask me." You know, you can message me if you need any advice. You know, um, it's it, it it's it's hard. I think it. I think it's can possibly be unhealthy because as a detransitioner to keep getting those messages because if you do have attachment issues, if you do feel insecure, and suddenly you're getting a ton of attention, but you're and and people are you know, sort of putting you on a pedestal. And it's very, very confusing to the ego. And I've joked a lot about this um, and been very open about it this whole time of being public. I'm just like, wow, me, my own thoughts are like, no one gives a fuck about me. Meanwhile, that very, like within an hour of having that like breakdown or whatever, personally, I'm getting messages that are like, you you know, you will save a generation of children and like all these, I'm just like that, that's a polarity, like, you know, um, and I appreciate all those messages and I, they really have, I've uh, absorbed them into my um, self-concept to have a more healthy self-esteem. But at the same time, it's like, it's very, it's just, it's a duality, extreme duality. Um, now, luckily I'm very into dualities and like noticing them and being like, wow, that's, the duality, but um, I, I think it for for people who haven't been able to develop their ego or really dissolve it in sort of more of a um, spiritual way or sort of understand um, more long term implications of uh, or you know um, be able to see long term to the future and have more of a being able to zoom out versus being so self focused. I think to get receive those sorts of messages like Chloe Cole people just talk about her all the time like they don't care whatsoever what they're saying about her and um you know I'm becoming friends with Chloe and we're gonna hang out in LA and and um you know she she is young she is you know very smart very brave but she isn't experienced and um you Know it's just a lot, and uh, it's kind of like being a child star, like everyone is projecting all of their garbage onto you. Um, and so I do, I, it's if you're if you need help, don't go to a random 21 year old on the internet who's talking about their trauma, go to Janspect and and get a and you know, email a parent organization um, because it's really not fair to um, to dump that. And if you do want to get access to that sweet information, you know, uh, that the wisdom that <laughs> the wisdom, you know, that you might glean from a detransitioner, um, you know, actually form a real connection with them and take an interest in their life outside of just saying sort of pitying, placating things. Um, And I know that's a fine line. I mean, that's a whole other discussion, like the way people, you know, give their, you know, um, remorse or um, sympathies to detransitioners. I mean, sometimes they're helpful. Like if they're more encouraging, I think they can be helpful. Like the messages that resonate with me are when people say like, you know you've been through so much and yet I can still see that you have such a light and you you have such amazing art and you know just hang in there and stuff like that versus the messages that are like wow you know um you should sue your doctors and and get a, and and um you know if I were you I would sue and you know I can't believe that happened. This world is a disgusting place and like just you can tell it's more focused on their own internal feelings about it then it really is about them trying to really comfort you
1: I hope you've been enjoying this episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast if you like what you're hearing now is a great time to like subscribe follow rate review or share you can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com/shop where you will find goods and services i've personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life we're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. Yeah. Wow, so much important information there. I mean, for one, it's like if you're if you're going to approach a, a detransitioner who you don't have a relationship with, first think about do you want a friendship or do you want a professional relationship? Is this are are you looking for something one-sided? Are you looking for them to help you? Or are you offering a friendship? And and when you come offering friendship, I mean, rarely do we approach each other saying, I would like to offer you a friendship. That's like not how how we build it. But there's, there's an art to it, right? And it starts with small gestures of give and take and reciprocity and testing the waters and offering little bits of yourself and building from there, right? And If that's not something that you're offering or have the capacity to engage in or that's not something that they want with you because they're free not to want to be your friend um, then consider that that would make the relationship you know a one-sided professional relationship and consider offering compensation for your time now you brought up some important points about consultations you said that you have done paid consultations you've also pulled back from that because you felt in over your head or the way that they were affecting you wasn't good for you. And, and this reminds me, I actually just had a conversation very recently with a detransitioned friend about this. Um, she was asking me about consulting and I was like, yeah, you just, you just put a button on your website that's, you know, like if someone wants your opinion, they can pay you money for it. And maybe nobody clicks on the button for six months. But, um, but I, but I was giving more, more detailed advice than that. I was sort of like, we were talking about, how are you, where are you feeling like you're personally at with your trauma right now? And how much can you share about yourself or how much can you talk about the topic in general while staying within your window of tolerance, which anyone who's done enough therapy is kind of familiar with that, that phrase, right? Like, do you have a solid baseline for yourself of where you feel like you have a good emotional place that you can rest or return to? And how robust is that? How long can you stay there? How much stress can you tolerate? What kind of stressors can you tolerate? And under what circumstances while remaining centered or being able to kind of collect yourself and return to center shortly thereafter? And to whatever extent this is a stressor for you, how much would someone have to pay you to tolerate that stress?
0: Right. Or to just do the work. (laughs) Huh? Yeah. My rate was pretty high when I was doing mm-hmm. it. I mean, I had a whole page on my website. Like, honestly, each session I approached, I felt grounded, focused on them. It, I, I don't feel that I failed in any way or the, what I why I didn't want to do it was because I felt like these people, these people need a therapist. These people need yeah. long term continuous, you know, they want to have a one-off consultation. I was not offering coaching, like a long-term relationship. I was offering a consultation, like initial, like, here's a dump load of advice, go find these other resources. But what they really wanted and needed was a long-term relationship and with a professional, ideally a therapist or coach. Um, And I felt like, you know, I can give information in other ways, but how many times, you know, how I just wonder, I mean, everyone who had a consultation with me said it was extremely useful. And I've never heard any complaints about it. But I'm just like, I don't know, it's it's so emotionally taxing. And I feel like I can just give them the information and they can just hear me speak or they keep asking me the same questions. Every single person's asking me the same thing. They can just learn about it in other ways. And then I can just link them to the professionals that they can have real long-term or, or support groups or or different things. So that's why I stepped out of it. Cause it's just like, I mean, I, I would be willing to speak to people like on a one-off, but um, from, for, for pay, but it's just, I feel, I, I can't really help them. I feel like, um, and I'm not in a place where I would offer a long-term um, coaching with my own trauma. I just can't commit to that. So
1: So I do work with parents long-term as a therapist, and I also offer consultations. Um, you know, I work with parents in the state of Oregon where I am licensed to diagnose and treat mental health conditions. And then, uh, outside of Oregon, if people want to work with me, this consulting option, I don't diagnose or treat conditions. I'm just speaking as someone who has the experience that I do both understanding therapy and the world of mental health and family systems and also understanding where things are at right now with the mental health system understanding where things are at with the gender crisis and so when someone consults with me i just speak frankly based on what i know of both worlds and um and i'm i stay grounded in that process and i and i charge for my time as well in fact i mean you talk about getting flooded with emails tell me what you think about this because I do not get paid to check my email, in fact, I have paid other people to try to help me with things like that. Um, and I get so much email and so many DMs that I could easily spend all my time working for free. Um, so I set up in, in my latest auto-response, there's a link that you can pay $8 for eight minutes of my time. <laughs> it's like, book, book an eight-minute call. Pay eight dollars on PayPal, and we can just talk. We could have a video call to talk about what your question is. If it's a quick enough question, uh, nobody's taken me up on it. I set it up like two days ago, um, but there has to be a way to to triage. And I mean, there are professionals, like you mentioned, GenSpec, Gender Exploratory Therapy Association, and then people like myself who are just more kind of rogue free agents, but who walk in both worlds and know the lay of the land. And it is heavy work, and part of why I'm able to work with these parents, it was not just my expertise on the gender issue and understanding where things are at in the world of therapy, it's also years and years of practice sitting with people in great amounts of distress and not trying to jump to superficial solutions because these parents are really worried and I do have to set realistic expectations for them. And they turn to me, it sounds like in similar ways that people turn to you sometimes, like this desperation for some kind of savior or some kind of solution. Mm -hmm. And You know, And even when people ask me for advice on podcasts and things like that, can you give any advice to parents? And it's like, well, it really depends. It's like I customize, I don't think solutions is the word, I customize interventions and approaches and feedback based on so many nuances of the family situation. And that takes time to understand. And it takes a lot of just sitting with their pain and their anxiety and saying like, There's so much that we can't control here, and I will do my best to help you, but you might lose your kid in so many ways. You might lose the relationship. You might lose them ideologically. You might see your kid go through loss of their physicality. Um, Worst case scenario, every parent's worst nightmare, your kid will die, right? Like, I can't take away the pain and fear of living with those possibilities, but I can try to understand your situation and Yeah, it's just crazy to me because working with these parents is certainly no less challenging. Arguably, it's more challenging at times than working with other clinical populations. And I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist with 10 years of experience. So, like, yeah, turning to, like, a young traumatized person who's just trying to get their shit together and saying, like, tell me how to fix my problems is... It's too much to ask. And so, but I do want detransitioners to get paid for their time. And so my thought is like part of the value of people doing the type of work that I'm doing is that we listen to what detransitioners have to say, we integrate it with our own understanding. And then we can speak from that place of integrated experience and wisdom. Right. And like you're right, detransitioners have said a lot. Like, there's no need for anyone to be contacting you for a specific question when there are thousands of hours on youtube (laughs) of conversations that you can watch with people who've been through this you can watch our documentary affirmation generation you can read these testimonials um and you know make sense of it in your own way but i mean my I, i don't mean to put parents down my heart goes out to them i work with them a lot um and i'm very sympathetic to the needs of parents but i am glad that today we had a chance to talk about this because it's not something i've talked about on my podcast before and i think it's important to address i think like detransitioners are really at the center of this crisis they are the ones who have directly physically and emotionally suffered the worst and so we need to be sort of triaging care and putting our arms around you guys as a community and we're so far from that um I know we're, we're almost out of time, but the one thing that I know we talked about before the interview that we haven't talked about yet is like, where do we go from here? You know, I I have some thoughts on creating infrastructure for the types of support that this rapidly growing population is going to need. Um, And I welcome you to comment on that. If there's any other thoughts you have, Laura, on where do we go from here? What kind of support systems do we put in place, but also just personally, like, where are you going from here too? Because we we started with your personal story and we kind of got away from that. But one reason I want to talk to you is because you are such a creative individual. You are distinctively yourself. You are Laura the Funk God and there's no one quite like you. And it's just really good to see you at this point in your journey. Like I've known you for a while now in various ways and I feel like I can sense a change in you. I can feel that you are stronger now than you were like a year ago. And um and so, did you want to talk about kind of your own sort of journey or this um, place of hope that you're at?
0: Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was like um, three questions in one. <laughs> yeah, I could talk a lot about all of those. Um, well, just to address the first question, I mean, in terms of going forward, what I have always said is the most important thing for detransitioners is affordable mental health treatment. And that's why I'm such a fan. Um, I'm so happy that. Um, the Gender Exploratory Therapy Association has been established. I am, I have received therapy. I've had two different therapists now from within that organization, Um, extremely, you know, competent individuals. Um, And um, so that's the number one thing, more therapy for detransitioners or, and as well as coaching, it doesn't have to be clinical therapy, but coaching, mentorship. Uh, you know, and, and community for detransitioners, building relationships that will inspire that person to be able to heal and to find power within themselves and to be mirrored in their experiences. So support groups and, you know, just really focusing on the um, psychosocial aspects of it um, because it is such an isolating experience because it's basically like being isolated from yourself and splitting your psyche in, in different ways. And um, so to connect with other people is where I'd like to see it go. Um, personally, now I have therapy, which I'm extremely grateful for. I do have those things. What I would personally like is um, just more opportunities to, um, you know, share my gifts and integrate that with meaningful work um, within this movement. And I'm, extremely grateful that so much is happening right now that there's so many um synchronicities it's very serendipitous right now in my life um I have you know graphic design I have my Etsy store I've was requested to release a you know a bunch of different products shirts hats um stickers flags buttons pins all these things for D-Trans awareness specifically and I've gotten a very positive reception you were one of my first customers who bought uh, the shirt. Um, And um, so, you know, I have been able to integrate, again, this sort of trauma and then Survivor, Laura, and then the Funk God, Laura. And it's been really a more integration because even Funk God is sort of my idealized version of my higher self that I often feel ashamed that I'm not being funk, go- I'm just like oh, I'm not living up to my own potential. But it's like no, I am starting to integrate that more now, which is like Laura, you know, the traumatized person, um and so more opportunities um, in ways that detransitioners can, you know, find resources and connections and opportunities to share their story in ways that aren't, um, you know, we didn't really get into the journalist population like the parents. The journalists and the and the media are are a whole other thing of how they interact with detransitioners but um you know in other ways to get paid to um you know doing podcasts um more like this you know which is um obviously we're more like friends um we know we know each other but um podcasts that are like what Benjamin Boyce does he does it really well he really does take a genuine interest in the person and uh, holistically and isn't just asking the same journalistic sort of questions, Um, you know, so opportunities like that where people can really shine in their holistic selves, you know, any opportunities for a person to express their unique gifts and interests related to advocacy, if they have that energy to do so, so many have that anger and energy to motivate them to do something and give advice and get involved. And I think doing that in a way that's less like, you know, being overwhelmed with, you know, requests for advice on how to solve other people's life problems and, or being asked to be a martyr in some kind of political way. i more just like, you know, you have a really valuable writing skill. Would you like to write an essay for this blog? You know, that sort of thing where they have more autonomy over it, over their own story. Um, so that's what I'd like to see personally. I think um, more opportunities. And like I said, in, in, terms of my sort of hope, um, related to that, um, I am going to LA in a couple of days as of filming this, um, for D-Trans Awareness Day. Um, and I'm speaking on a, a panel, a Q and A discussion panel on affirmation generation. And then I'm organizing a, um, sort of other events with d and and just, there's going to be a lot of, community healing, you know, just real interpersonal um, experiences, um, as well as, you know, I have my designs and um, various opportunities for graphic design work and and all these sort of ways that I can express my gifts um, and in a way that makes me feel empowered versus just rehashing my victim narrative over and over and over again as trauma porn for voyeurs you know
1: wow sharp words um and great yeah thank you so much laura it's been great to have you here um so i will make sure that i include your etsy link in the show notes but tell people all the places that they can find you
0: so the main place that i get into trouble is on twitter um funk god artist You can also check out my whole portfolio and all my philosophies on my website, funkgod.com. My Etsy shop is Funk God. And you can also find me on Substack at Funky Psyche and on YouTube as uh, Laura Funk God. Wherever Funk Gods are
1: sold. (laughs) (laughs) You're easily found. All right. Talk to you soon.
0: All right. Thank you.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at some You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.